0: Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast with Oslo Business Forum where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Rignas, and today we'll be talking about understanding the path to innovation, assembling great teams, and the myth of disruption. We're talking to Nathan Furr, Professor of Strategy and Innovation at INSEAD and a recognized expert in the fields of innovation and technology strategy. Nathan earned his PhD from Stanford University and studies how established companies innovate and how they navigate change, particularly digital transformation, and has published four award-winning books. Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So leaders today in virtually any business knows that they're on a cliff. They'll either succeed or fail in the technological revolution facing them. And realistically speaking, the odds of success are in many ways against them. And in one of your articles, and I have read a few, you write that often it's not the inability to solve technological or strategic problems that cause companies to fail, but the human problems associated with change, such as fear and habits and politics and lack of innovation that frequently block efforts to innovate. In your book, Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future, you outline a new process rooted in an emerging field called behavioral transformation, which focuses on understanding how innovation and transformation actually happens in organizations. You divide it into three steps to help overcome the behavioral constraints that thwart innovation the most. I believe our listeners would love to hear more about these three, envisioning the future, breaking down resistance, and navigating unknown territory. What can you tell us about these three areas?
1: So in that book, we were really trying to address these age-old problems. We all know them. The problems are as old as the hills, the things that stop us from change. And our work didn't invalidate anything that went before us. All we were trying to do is say, if we took a look at the last 20 to 30 years of behavioral science, would we get any inspiration from that about how to design new, better tools, redesign old tools? And we really, if you look at the behavioral science, you'll see just a a long running list of the ways that people get stuck, the biases that trip them up. You'll hear about confirmation bias or anchoring or these things. And we said, well, can we simplify this? And what we really came down to is three key bottlenecks that get in the way of people and organizations making change. That is, first, the tendency to get stuck in the day-to-day and not see what else is possible for our organizations or for us as individuals. Number two, the The barriers uh, that are related to habit and routine, you know, so that may be at a personal level, the habits, the routine you're in every day in an organization, it's the roles and functions that people play. And then the last is actually overcoming the fear of doing something new. That's the fear of the unknown. And our fear of the unknown is so high. I mean, one of my co-authors is a a neuroscientist, and we actually have multiple systems in our brains that fire when we encounter uncertainty and and that warn us. And of course, the challenge is in the modern world, we need to step in to do new and different things. So we just design tools to address those three key bottlenecks.
0: (laughs) I also want to discuss how to profit from radical innovation, Mm. which many fear may be more like cannibalism than Mm. anything else. And you underline that hybrids may be a stepping stone into the future defining hybrids as technologies or business models mm. that combine parts of the old with parts mm. of the new. Mm. What's your reasoning around that? And why did your research find that when you're facing this uncertainty, mm. hybrids are a tool to learn about and even shape that future?
1: Mm. So this is a great question. You really have read broadly because I really work at different levels of analysis. So I work at a strategy level, organization level, and then like at a microprocess level. So when we're talking about, say, leading transformation, for example, we're talking at more of an organizational level. When you start talking about hybrids, we're starting to talk more at a strategy level. And that really, you know, there's a lot of fear right now about being disrupted. And and that's maybe a productive thing because it wakes us up. But the question is, can we respond to disruption? And the answer is absolutely. There are many, many organizations that successfully respond to disruption. And there's actually a menu of potential responses to a disruptive technology. But one of them is this idea that you can, recognizing that it actually takes years, maybe sometimes decades for a disruption to occur. And one of the ways to span that big chasm of potential disruption is to combine the old and the new in some way. So for example, in the auto industry, Toyota's Prius is a great example. When the electric car was just maybe a Twinkle in somebody's eye long before a Tesla Motors. Toyota developed a hybrid that combined elements of the electric vehicle future and elements of the internal combustion engine past and created the platform that really defined the industry. Our theory is that it helps them bridge their way to the future. Another example is I'm a university professor, I teach at INSEAD. For 20 years, we've been talking about the internet disrupting the university. It could, it might, we want to be ready. So how do we be ready? Well, one of the ways is we just steal, I hate to use that word, but steal the best components of that future and we use it today in what we do. So for example, I may do work with a group of CXOs of a global company and we My message may be valuable, and they may see, "Oh, Nathan, I wish we could roll out parts of this message to somebody, to the rest of the organization." But I can't go stand in front of five thousand people. But we can use digital as a tool and online courses as a tool to roll out that message. And so, the hybrid idea was very simply that it takes time for disruptions to occur, and often in that middle space. Borrowing elements of the past and the future is one way to both learn about what the future will be, but also preserve the value of what you already know.
0: I want to discuss teams, because it seems like everyone these days are obsessed with creating really, really great teams, and no one can really crack the code of what mm. defines a really good team. Google's huge study a few years ago claimed that psychological safety was the number one causal factor of a successful team, but you have a different approach to it, looking at the composition of team members instead. You claim that innovation teams and established companies, and I can relate to this, should be structured differently than execution teams and even startups teams, and you coin them lunatics experts and connectors saying that they work best together. Why are these characteristics
1: important? So you have to understand there's a theme underneath all my work, and it's very simply, how do we manage uncertainty? So my theory is that we live in a world of increasing uncertainty and that we need to develop the tools and frameworks to manage that world. So everything that I've done is about how to answer that question. And one of the questions is, well, how do we organize a team And in that particular element, we were just trying to say, let me put it this way. I think big corporations organize based on a specific metaphor, which is around their products and their geographies and their expertise. And they develop these silos around those things. But if you look by contrast at a startup, they organize very differently. For example, there's a rule of thumb that if you want to create a software startup, you need a hacker, a hipster, and a hustler. Very cute. But if you look underneath the cute alliteration, what they're really saying is instead of organizing around products and geographies, organize around problems and capabilities to solve those problems. Because if you're going to start a software company, you need a customer problem to solve. That's the hustler's job, to be out on the street talking to customers, understanding their need, their job to be done you're going to need some software, a solution. That's the hacker's job. And then you're going to need to build a business model around it and optimize it. And that is the hipster's job to do the user interface design, but also to optimize the uh, input funnel of customers. And so it's really this thinking of what problems will I face? How do I structure a team that can search for those solutions? Now. In that particular example of, you know, the lunatics and the connectors and the experts, that was for a corporation that was struggling to break free of their old way of doing things. And what the lunatics did is they pushed the team to imagine bigger, to see crazier futures. What the connectors did is they helped the team connect to knowledge that the organization had, some of it sitting in back shells or an old memory. And what the experts did is is connect the team to how to do things. And those, so what they were really doing is saying the problems the team had is how do we dream up a radical solution using many of the resources we had? What the lunatic solved was dreaming up a big solution. What the connectors solved was drawing widely on the incredible diverse, diversity of knowledge in the corporation. And what the experts solved is how do we actually then get something done? So, but what I would encourage you to remember is what problems will I face? What capabilities do I need to solve that? It sounds so simple, but I see so many corporate teams put together that don't have the capabilities to solve the problem.
0: And on solving problems, I want to discuss the tools to help, as you coin it, repeat innovation. Mm. There seems to be so many different frameworks that people talk about today. It's so many buzzwords, design thinking, lean startup, customer Mm. development, agile software, and Mm. so on. To understand these tools, you investigated how entrepreneurs and uh, managers were able to repeatedly create value through case study research on companies in four groups established companies that maintain high innovation premiums after founding, mm-hmm. established companies that lost their innovation capabilities and regained it, mm-hmm. successful startup innovators, and innovation failures. Mm-hmm. What did you find, and is there a one size fit all for Mm. companies Mm. to generate, Mm. maintain, or regain innovation?
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There are all these frameworks out there, and this is actually a very personal story for me. So I was doing my doctoral work at Stanford when the Lean Startup movement. emerged, the beginnings of it. And I was one of the early lean startup guys. We didn't call it that at that time uh, until Eric Reese, who was part of that group, later coined the term. And it was really supposed to be a revolution in how to be an entrepreneur, introducing new and better tools for an entrepreneur to test their ideas. But... At the same time, we were doing that. My group was also involved in founding the D School to teach design thinking. And it was very similar in some respects to Lean Startup, but different in others. And And then across the street over in computer science, they were busy kicking out waterfall development techniques in favor of agile software development techniques. And, and again, it was sort of similar to Lean Startup, but also sort of different. And, and I just asked myself, why are all these frameworks popping up right now? And why are they competing? against each other because there was like almost this religious war which one's right lean startup or design thinking and what my theory was is that actually i asked the question what if all these different frameworks are simply like the proverb of the blind people in the room feeling different parts of the elephant but they're all describing the same elephant so what we did is we number one tried to synthesize these frameworks say if we look at them all in parallel what do we have in common uh, what's the underlying process to manage innovation. And, and we describe that work in a book called The Innovator's Method. And we really identify four key elements that successful innovations had in common or innovators figured out before they scaled up. And this was, of course, there was some sort of insight or spark or clue that led to a new idea. But then they deeply understood first, using a series of techniques, what job are we trying to do for customers? What problem are we really trying to solve? About 70% of corporate initiatives fail because they don't first understand what problem are we actually solving. Then they use like minimum viable prototypes to rapidly test that solution. They iterated and experimented with their business model all before they invested in scaling it up. Uh, which is very contrary to how we often work in big companies. In big companies, what we have is we have a big idea, we get a big budget on it, and we scale it up, and we miss understanding really what problem are we solving. We miss using those prototypes to test what problems are we, you know, are our hypotheses correct? We miss changing the business model to fit the innovation. And so the second thing we did in that book Innovator's Method in addition to describing what's underneath it, what's the underlying fundamentals of innovation is we did this research on how are big companies applying these? Cuz these were tools that you know startups were using pretty naturally and innovators to be honest who are successful had always kind of known this. But but how do corporates start to integrate this and how do they start to use it? And now Is there one size fits all? Uh, I mean, uh, of course not. So we have to vary the principles. You know, whether if you're going after an incremental innovation, it will be a little different than a radical innovation. So, for example, while I talk about using minimum viable prototypes, that's the bare minimum you could use to start learning today. And in an incremental environment, that could be a drawing. You can take a drawing and show it to a customer. It take you five minutes, and and you can start testing your hypotheses. In a radical innovation setting, you still can use the same principle, but often people need to see it and try it. You can't just ask them, what do they think? A great example would be like the Aeron chair. It's that mesh chair that's kind of light and airy. It's very comfortable to sit on. But when the designers first showed pictures of that chair to people, they were like, oh, that looks terrible because they're used to these big, comfy executive chair type things. But when they tried it, they loved it. And so there, of course, we want to vary this, whether it's an incremental or radical innovation, whether it's a product or a platform, but underneath it, the core principles, I see them over and over again of deeply understanding what is my customer really trying to get done? using radically simple, low-cost experiments to test key hypotheses early rather than late or with a lot of money. And number three, being really open to what's the right business model. How do I iterate on the business model to test this.
0: I have a ton of follow-up questions, but mm. unfortunately you are due to get on stage. We are live at the Oslo Business Forum. But before I let you go, mm. um, we have three questions. Okay. Um, if you could give your 20-year-old self, Nathan, mm. one piece of advice, <laughs> what would you tell you?
1: Wow. One piece of advice. That's a great question because I haven't thought so much about what I advice I would give my 20-year-old do self. Do you do everything but, perfectly? No, <laughs> yeah, no. You know what? We live in a world of uncertainty and change. And that can be a very stressful thing. And I remember when I was 20 years old, being super stressed about the future, what would I do? And one of the most wonderful pieces of advice was from my university counselor. I went, I was talking to him, how am I going to get a job and all this stuff? And he just looked at me and said, listen, no offense, but I have socks in my drawer that are older than you. And he just said, you know what? Life is long. You're going to figure it out. And it, it decreased my anxiety some, and, and it was helpful. And knowing what I know now, I would, I would say it differently. I would say we live in a world of uncertainty and change, but where is that uncertainty coming from? It's coming from the fact that the barriers to do new things are lower than they've ever been. So it's actually also a world of possibility. So instead of being afraid of the uncertainty and kind of trying to hedge all your bets, see the possibility Be willing to take the risks, try new things, do new things, because it's actually, it's a world for the taking. It's a world for the creating. That's what it's really about. So don't get confused by the uncertainty. See the possibility and embrace that.
0: Well, that should just be a graduation speech right there. (laughs) Very inspiring. What's your uh, favorite podcast or book that you would like to recommend?
1: So I love the uh, Stanford Technology Ventures Programme. They have a podcast series called uh, the E-Corner series in which they interview entrepreneurs and innovators. In terms of uh, my favorite book, I actually would recommend the great works of literature to people. So, for example, Steinbeck's East of Eden. And you may say, wow, what does that have to do with business? Everything Steinbeck essentially argues in a very beautiful way in that book about our fundamental human nature And he highlights that all of us have inside of us the desire to do good and the desire to do bad And at the end of the day, it's all our choice. It's all our choice. Be a little easy on yourself Don't be too critical on yourself because we're all drawn to good and bad But what kind of world do you want to create? It's up to us Well, that's a thinker.
0: Now, where should people go to follow you
1: online? Oh, that's a great question. Look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I do have a Twitter account, Nathan underscore fur. And I I do a lot of writing in Harvard Business Review and Sloan Management Review. So, but yeah, give me a look up on LinkedIn. I should do better about the social media front. I've been heads down generating ideas and talking about ideas and Less less strong on broadcasting them, which is somewhat ironic given what I'm going to talk about today. I would say, yeah. um, and
0: I'm very excited to see your talk later. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. Before you uh, go on stage and into the heat, this has yeah. been so interesting, oh. and uh, you are very very clever.
1: Oh, thank you. That's super kind of you. I may need. Can I come here every morning to like get a like little pump up for the day? Yeah, I yeah. would love to. I'll just get become
0: so smart in a year. That would yeah, be yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. Great. You're listening to Future Forecast, a podcast produced by Oslo Business Forum and myself. Tune in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability with some of the most interesting experts and entrepreneurs from around the world. If you like this podcast and are wondering how you can support us, please take a second to give a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. And if you have a friend or colleague you think might appreciate it, every share counts. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Talk to you soon.